Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding, and you're listening to Discover Someone Remarkable, conversations worth sharing. Join me as I interview passionate founders and industry experts, people who think differently, challenge the status quo, and are building a legacy. People who I consider truly remarkable. In today's episode, I interview Francis Barham, founder and director of Insight, a multi-award-winning energy management company. Francis is an energy management thought leader and entrepreneur. He's a leading sustainability advisor in South Africa and published author of a book called How to Profit from Climate Change. He's also the founder and director of two other businesses, energy management software platform Inspara and renewable energy company Barron Energy. Francis and his team want to change the world for good. By 2035, they plan to save one gigaton of greenhouse emissions per year, every year. That's equivalent to approximately 1.74 million Airbus A380s. Francis explains how they've adapted their business from a consulting business into a technology business, how they're helping 200 KFC stores across South Africa reduce energy wastage. Francis takes me back to how he got started and how he helped stop a power plant being built on a Queensland Heritage listed site. We discuss common myths about how going green doesn't have to mean a reduction in profit and how important it is for businesses to have a clearly defined vision. Francis is brilliant at helping people see energy differently. I hope this episode helps transform the way you see energy. Thanks very much for coming on, Francis. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, cool. So we always kick these off the same way with just a simple icebreaker. What's your favorite brand and why? Yeah, for me, it's Apple. I think as a product, it's, or as a company, as a brand, it's, you know, besides, you know, standing for quality, standing for innovation, it's uh, best in class. You know, you're going to get something that's solid, it's beautiful, but it's also something where they're willing to take risks, like push the boundaries of what technology can do to actually help people. And I, I guess that the key thing that Jobs did, which is, you know, although very subtle, very significant, was about what the benefit of the technology was to, to a customer. And so the 10,000 yeah. songs in a pocket or the ability to have a computer in your hand, that fundamental simple concept makes the, how Apple puts technology in my hand as a consumer as something that is going to be useful for something. Versus trying to work out what I can do with the technology, like I've always found the you know the the competitors not as easy as a technology to use than Apple. So yeah, Apple is my favourite brand. Yeah, it's a great example. I mean, yeah, Apple's products are just so user friendly, and it's funny. I remember when I first bought a laptop, and I was comparing between a like just a normal PC laptop and an, a MacBook, and I was asking people what they liked about um their MacBook or what laptop they had and why. And everyone I spoke to who had an Apple was like, oh, I love my computer. I love my computer. I love my MacBook. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. everyone else who just had a PC was like, oh, yeah, I've got this PC. It's got these features and things like that. And it was really weird. But people who had Apple products just had just this, you know, deep affinity for it of just it just worked and they've had a, felt a real connection yeah. to it. And it's amazing that Apple's able to do that with so many different products now. Yeah, I think it's a re- really good example. I was a, a PC user up until like uh, the late 90s. And at that time, you know, like, a, like a MacBook equivalent. So it was, a, I used to buy Toshiba's. They were like 6,000 Australian dollars back in 1994. Wow. And so super expensive. 
And then, you know, then I think I had after that one uh, bit by IBM and stuff. And it was, it was only when I got the Apple, my first MacBook would have been about 2000. It was like, but it doesn't crash. Like, isn't <laughs> crashing normal? I just thought of crashing. I got it. I had no concept that crashing wasn't part of the experience because I had no experience <laughs> other than using a PC. And so that was my biggest comment. So I reckon I've saved more money on the Mac, on the MacBook with, with my MacBook not crashing in one week. <laughs> it cost me bloody MacBook. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. A, something we really take for granted now. No, that's a good example. So Francis, looking at the last twelve months, what's either been the biggest highlight or the greatest challenge? Well, it was. Um, Three years ago, when you know, I was confronted and challenged to make a, a big decision around setting a goal for the business of Insight, and, and just basically decided, you know, original 100 million ton target for 2035 was not bold enough, um, and so, you know, taking a lot of feedback from everyone, realizing, yeah, this is not, you know, 100 million tons is. Well, it's very ambitious and a lot, it doesn't actually change the game. So what would it have to be to change the game would be a gigaton. And uh, so then, okay, created the vision for Insight. We're going to save a gigaton per year by 2035. Uh, and all I knew is that our current business model was not going to deliver that. And, you know, in my, my experience of doing the business is that, I, you know, like business models aren't easily created. Like, you know, I'm in a certain... We're in a certain mode of operating. So three years ago, decided this one gigaton, didn't know how we're going to get there. And basically 12 months ago, through a journey of being, you know, been on a journey of looking at solving actual business problems at the time, totally rethought how we could operate as a business that it turns out could make the gigaton possible. And that was basically three different elements came up and so 12 months ago, decided we we're going to become a technology business, not a consulting business. So shift all our expertise and consulting we'd learn in the consulting game we learn on energy management, push that into a software platform, which is called Inspira, and use that to help companies leverage their mission and goals to reduce greenhouse with that software. And then in, because of the technology play, like in, for example, IBM is the, the company I was shown, they, they have in the computer game or in the tech world, IBM offers things called service packs. Yeah. And it's like, so what, what, what does service packs allow them to do? Pre-engineers solutions. So for, for whether it's a data center or a, you know, a mainframe or a deployment of computers into a, a company, they create one, they engineer the solution once and then they sell that solution. And this, then the challenge came, can we create that concept for energy management? And so uh, we then started some projects with the quick service restaurants, which we would have never done before because of, like consulting fees are so expensive. Our guys, our engineers getting paid serious money. You know, if we had, you know, 10 days of consulting in one store would use their annual electricity costs, right? So obviously you're never going to better service the small market um, with using traditional consulting. So the, taking this concept of service packs, we took on a project at a QSR where I was at KFC uh, in South Africa in Durban and our original goal was to 
come up with some standard designs to save 20% of the energy. That would seem to be the number to make it a business proposition. And in fact, doing this process, we discovered we could save 50% of their energy costs uh, and basically through what we call eight service packs. And then we've found that we can apply those eight service packs to every quick service restaurant, whether it's a, you know, not just a KFC, but a Nando's or a Chicken World or a McDonald's, they're all the same. And in my analogy of greenhouse, the QSR is a bit like a, a whiting, you know, in terms of fish analogy and a mining company is like a blue whale. And <laughs> yeah. what my analogy was to my staff was, to get the gigaton, we need to better get the whiting, the white bait, the <laughs> tuna, the sharks, and the blue whales. We need all of that to get the gigaton. And this technology approach to service packs, we're taking a technology industry approach to energy management, creating these energy management service packs. And we just signed up our first 200 stores just before our lockdown occurred uh, six weeks ago. And the owners, the business owners, love the idea. They, they love the concept of us providing these pre-engineered solutions and financed externally uh, on the savings. And then the third element, so it's two, so one was the soft, moving to a full software offering. Second was creating a technology approach to energy management, of the service packs. And the third was uh, really looking at you know, what the, the, you know, in the market, in the conversation, the narrative, I'm sure you've seen in the papers, you know, how do we meet base load if we go renewable? You know, so, solar is only there for six hours a day and wind is variable. And so we need coal for 24-hour day, day power. And we've been working on a project over you know, several years looking at different solutions of um, biomass to supply uh, energy. And in doing that, you know, looked at lot, lots of different biomass solutions. And the general feedback we got from the greenies in commerce was that, oh, biomass is bad because if you put biomass in the ground, you're going to take away a food supply, which is actually bad. I think it's ridiculous that we'd be planting crops that would take away a food supply. Yeah. So, um, so in that journey of taking that feedback and looking at the problem, we ca- came across cactus as a, as, a, as a biomass that's used in Mexico to make electricity or make gas and make electricity from the gas. And then we took that concept to some projects in South Africa. And so essentially creating renewable energy gas to provide 24-hour day power from cactus grown in arid areas. So it doesn't detract from our food supply. Uh, it can be grown in areas that have uh, low rainfall, and what happens is you actually process the, the, the cactus leaves, they're called calodes, uh, in a biodigester and it makes methane for every thousand hectares. We get around about half a petajoule of gas, which is a lot of gas. Um, and so uh, and I must you know, compliment you on the Barren Energy brand that you came <laughs> up with to compass cactus. Um, that was brilliant. Yeah, thank um, you. So, yes, yeah, so those, those, those in the last 12 months, that were the three things that, you know, in the space of a few weeks came together to say, yeah, that's the direction we're going to go in, um, you know, taking, taking a totally different approach to our business. And you don't shift a business easily. So we were a consulting business, moving to a technology business, and, you know, we're still in that journey now. We're still, you know, 
morphing ourselves, um, you know, it's struggling. You know, it's a bit of rebirthing, you know, to be this technology play. Um, so I hope I can share some of that later with you about some of the progress we've made. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, you've described that goal of hitting the, you know, one gigaton or savings of one gigaton. And then having that clearly defined goal, I guess, gave you something to aim for and that actually forced you to change the business towards that. Mm. So moving from a consulting mm. business into a tech business. I think that's really cool. Mm. So Francis, what do you love about the work that you do? Well, I'm very passionate about you know, reducing uh, impacts on the environment. So it's like, so think the work we do is around, uh, well, it's around energy, Obviously, energy is a proxy for impact on the environment through use of fossil fuels, through greenhouse emissions and impact on climate change, you know, water, consumption of water resources, etc. So because I'm passionate about you know, leaving a legacy on the environment, the actual interesting work is it's not easy. It requires, you know, energy is one of those things that you typically can't see or, you know, you're not impacted. You're only impacted by the result of it, not by it itself. And yeah. so what I love about the work is that you know, the end game is to improve uh, or reduce our impact on the environment. But to get that result uh, is requires a whole set of skills around technical analysis, economic analysis, and, and developing business cases, and getting the buy-in from like because we're going to a business to change their, what they're doing to create the, get the buy-in for them to accept that there's a different way of doing business and. And so typically there's a lot of resistance because they think they're already efficient and, and if they adopt a new way, that might indicate that they were doing something wrong in the past. And so the complexity of human interaction, economic evaluation, business cases and technical overlay of all that, along with application of actually technology, means that in terms of challenge, a challenge is massive challenge to, uh, to, to solve those problems. And it's always in something that is new. Like I've never been to a KC store until last January or February. <laughs> and it's like now I may be, you know, like I wouldn't say I'm an expert on KFCs yet, but, you know, give me another 12 months, I reckon I'll be a guru on how to run a K, you know, these <laughs> KFC stores. And that's what happens is that wherever we work, whether we go to a furnace or to a, you know, a high-rise building or a mall, you, and we end up becoming experts in those operations because you can't redesign the energy solution if you don't understand what they're trying to do, what's the outcome the client wants. So that's very you know, nourishing for my mind and my soul. Yeah. Is it quite challenging sometimes? You mentioned before you met with a bit of resistance when presenting some of these solutions because you know, potentially the people doing this or the companies either set in their ways or they think that they're fully optimised. How do you get around that sometimes by convincing them to go with you know, the energy management solutions that you guys offer? and sort of believe in the promises or the claims and, yeah, get that, I guess, across the line? Well, typically it's reasonably easy to get the financial people on board. I mean, maybe chunk up a few levels. Essentially, there are lots of stakeholders in these decisions, even for a KFC. You'd think, oh, you just got a KFC store owner. No, it doesn't work like that. They have a CEO, they have a CFO, they have a COO, they have, you know, they have, they have experts in running the store, they have experts in the marketing, and all of them have a say in what's going on in the store just like in a mine. So typically the financial people are on board reasonably easily because they can see that energy is typically rising and more problematic in terms of their profits. And management 
senior management typically are okay. Like they, they can see that, that, you know, if there's an opportunity, they want to pursue it. The resistance comes more when you get to the team that's got to implement the change of the, the savings. And that could be at a regional level, like a, like a divisional level of a company. So in a KFC case, they've got 60 stores. This operator we're working with. There's a person who runs all the 60 stores technically. And then you'll have the actual contractor working on the store. And so both at the divisional level and at the contractor level, you know, like you were saying, people just don't want to change. They want to, you know, there's got to be a good reason for want to want to change. And at a mining level, typically you have the same, like in divisional engineering and site engineering and the resistance starts there because essentially there's a certain, you know, conservatism, like going back to KFC, all the mine is the same. There's a conservatism about change because, you know, if they change and it fucks up, like they're going to be, you know, held accountable. So there's a risk from their perspective, that's a high risk. And the other, but the, the, unfortunately the corollary is if they implement and it's successful, then they feel <laughs> like they might be blamed for not yeah. having done it before. Yeah. So what I've found to succeed is taking away the attempting to we take away the blame. So it's not about trying to say something's wrong and we're trying to fix it. It's really saying, you know, we're all committed to running the plant as efficiently as we can, and that's your commitment, that's our commitment. We do a few tests and get some data, just have a look at how things are going now. And basically, you know, one of my sayings I have with this, my engineers is facts are a beautiful thing. Like we don't want to get into opinion-based engineering. So one typically before you get into solving problems, everyone's got an opinion about why things are they are as they are and why they tried something in the past and why it failed. And then seriously, this can go on for months of just share people sharing opinions. So learn from hard, you know, my hard lessons are just get facts. And if they're part of getting the collecting the facts, because like typically they're like typically people do want to do the right thing. They do want to do the right thing. So the issue is okay, well, we maybe don't know what we're doing. Like, maybe we've got it wrong, so let's collect some facts and see if, you know, what they say, and maybe it supports your position or maybe it supports our position, but let's, like, just well, let's be open to seeing what the facts say, and most people go along with that because, yeah, of course, yeah, we'll collect some facts. And uh, I, I can remember, you know, one job I did was at a smelter, and uh, I did this, did this same conversation with the site manager, uh, production manager, they call them. And, uh, and I told him, you know, can I talk about this, you know, this, this furnace optimization project with you? He said, no, we've stopped talking about that project. It's wasting our time. <laughs> we don't want to do it. Uh, and which is like the prevailing, you know, conversation. And I said, okay, got that. But do you mind if I could just show you a graph of what the furnace is doing now? And if after you look at the graph, if you're satisfied and if after you look at the graph, if you're satisfied with what you see, fantastic. And if you're not, maybe there's a conversation. And so I'm just wasting my time. But okay, well, if it's going to shut you up, I'll put on a, show me the, the graph. So I opened the laptop, got the graph out. And he says, what's that? I said, that's your furnace. No, it's not. It's your furnace. No, it's not. Mate, it's your furnace right now. That's the data from yesterday. No, it's not. Mate, it's your furnace. Look at the numbers. And he looked at the graph. And he said, holy shit. And then he picked up the phone straight away and got his uh, head of engineering. What the fuck are you doing on that plant? Why aren't you doing X, Y, Z? <laughs> and so it was like, you know, then he became our biggest advocate. Like he was a guy that wanted to kick our ass and you know, stop the conversation. And the facts, though, speak for themselves. 
And so, so KFC was the same. Until we showed them, you know, the, until they saw their bills going down and there's nothing changing in the store, they became our biggest sales advocates of saying, hey, shit, this is like I can see it on the bill. Yet nothing has changed. I don't get it. Versus like you can, you know, we can say, what well, I can say lots of wonderful, you know, things we can do and have done, but at the end of the day, it's, well, what can you do for me and prove it? So, the, so one of the ideas, uh, the other idea we really promote is called gradual incrementalism. Like, don't go for the big hit. Go for a small hit. Get confidence, build trust. And I think I might have shared with you when we're doing the brand exercise uh, on Insight, uh, I was sharing that, you know, we used to go to the mines and go, we can save 20%. And they go, oh, yeah. my God. Like, <laughs> okay, what about 10%? You can do 10%. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're at five. Okay, we do five. Yeah. And so then it became like, you know, start with five, then go to 10, then go to 15, then go to 20 because the mind, for whatever reason, resists big claims. And so going, and that's what we did with KFC too. We started just doing did three things, just three things, air conditioning, hot water, and exhaust control. And doing those three things, that was enough to say 15%. And you know, versus like, let's say 50%. So the 50% came after 12 months, not after, you know, we went on a whole journey to get to that 50%. Yeah. The, so what I find is the gradual incrementalism, let's start with, it's got to be a target big enough to get their interest. So it can't be nothing, it can't be 1%. It's got to be a few percent, <laughs> but take on one step, make an adjustment. What is the data showing? Oh, yeah, wow, that's good. Save the energy and costs. Oh, it didn't make any difference. Okay, let's do a bit more. And so, so that building of confidence and trust is uh, is one way. The other way is is like you know the guarantee, like I'm putting my money on the line. So I did a project in the US last year, and the project changed hands. And in that process, obviously, we are an unknown quantity to the new buyer. And so, you know, because we knew the project, and we were very confident about what we we're doing. I said, okay, this it's a half million US project. I said, look, don't pay us any money until we get this signed off by you know, their client and once they sign off, so we'll take all the risk up to that point. And so make it easy, like for then it's like, then you must trust yourself. You must believe in yourself if we don't believe in it. And so yeah. then when obviously we did get that sign off, they were very happy to pay the check and, and make the change. So risk sharing, gradual incrementalism, are key things in getting, I guess, doubters on board. And I, but I must give one warning. There was uh, actually an important engineer and he was doing a project at a smelter on a on some compressed air and we knew there was about a 40% saving because just looking at the data, it was clear there was, you know, that there was some major operational issue. And so this young engineer, uh, go and have a look at this project and you know, we do we run a basic design process we go through. So he's in the first couple of stages of that design process and asked him to do a presentation. And he did his presentation, but he said there was no, there's only three percent savings. Again, what's what do you mean? There's three percent savings? You must have missed something. And what it was, it was he couldn't believe that an engineer would design the system inefficiently. Like it was not possible. So he said, "Mate, go back and we you know, go back and look again, because you're obviously missing something." Pointed him in the direction to look at, and he came back and said, "Okay, maybe there's ten percent. No, mate, it's forty percent. Go. <laughs> you're not asking the right questions." But in the end, he just over six months it took him. And he, in that time, he could not make the shift like that an engineer could design a system that was so inefficient. And in the end, he let um, it get second because like, it was like that barrier to thinking means that you're not, you can't see opportunities. Yeah. And we've had a few people like that where just, it's not 
because of the preconceived ideas and it shows the power of the mind. And I must say, like my whole experience in energy goes back to Einstein's thinking. Einstein said, you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created the problem. And energy systems were designed, you know, really, uh, you know, the university training with all our, you know, designs of infrastructure buildings came out of the, you say, the 50s and the 60s when electricity started getting produced, you know, uh, massively, you know, distributed around, you know, the countries, like both, you know, all Western countries. But the idea was, and the reality was, energy was super cheap, low expensive, and 24-hour power was what was being offered. So the thinking of power always being available 24 hours a day and being super cheap, was that was the foundation of all the thinking that went into the engineering and the designs. So we're sitting with that legacy, but we don't know we're in it. We don't know we're in that, that paradigm and... And it, it does require a shift of thinking to go, actually, electricity is no longer one cent a kilowatt hour, it's 10 cents or 20 cents. And, you know, if you could be more flexible when you use energy, you could save a lot of money, you know, so the time of when you use it during the day. And that subtle, just a very subtle shift, if you are in the old paradigm, you don't, you don't even see that opportunity. And it's only in the new paradigm, if you take that new thinking, that you can actually see the opportunities that present themselves. And that's why you know, we can go to a KFC store and over a 12-month period come up with a you know, 50% reduction in energy use where they've had you know, contractors, engineers. It's a global brand. Obviously, they know what they're doing. They, they, but if you aren't asking the right question, you always end up with the same result. Yeah. And that's essentially you know, where... So with KFC, Francis, what's the simple example of maybe one of the practical applications that you guys have done with them? Yeah, so at a KFC, the core to KFC is chicken. And so they will have typically three, five, seven, up to 11 large deep fryers, like penny penny fryers, depending on the size of the store. And so it's core to their business. They've got to cook fried chicken, right? So these are deep fryers and they're pressurized. And what happens is when they go through the cooking cycle, which takes 15 to 20 minutes, it, it's the steamer, the pressure cooker releases steam. So the steam has been built up into, in, you know, because it's obviously it's frozen chicken. So there's moisture in that. And then it's because it's in a sealed vat. When you release that pressure, the steam that was in the, or the moisture that was in the chicken is now obviously exceeded, excluded from the fat, it has to be escaped. So it steam, steams out. And so they have a exhaust system in the kitchen that currently runs, you know, when they operate, you know, turn on the kitchen at 6 in the morning till 11 at night, they run an exhaust system pulling about 1.5 kilowatts of energy during that time for the event of the steam going off. Now, you know, in the store, we were in there five fryers, of which three were used, and essentially, you know, maybe five times an hour for one minute, the steamer goes off. The system's designed for that five one-minute events in the hour. So it just means that for the 90% of the time, you don't need that level of exhaust wood extraction. So we basically put in a sensor that sends steam in the exhaust duct or exhaust wood and put a, what's called a variable speed drive, a device that converts uh, the AC power to DC and back to AC, and then you can vary the frequency and the speed of the motor. Now, the interesting thing about motors, so like fans and pumps, is that there's a thing called the affinity laws, and power is a function of the uh, cube of the speed. 
which means that if you do a 10% reduction in speed, you have a 50% reduction in energy. So essentially, we, when we sense the steam, we take the speed to, in fact, 90% because it was over-designed. And then when the steam is not sensed, which is like a, a minute later, we then drive the speed down to 30% or 30 hertz, uh, which is about a 50% reduction. So we get like an 80% reduction in power. And over the day, we find an 80% reduction in power is achieved just by a simple sensor and a you know, technology variable speed drive. Where before it was um, running, you know, twenty-four, hours, well, twelve hours a day or sixteen hours a day. Yeah, that's cool. That's really. I mean, it's it sounds simple, but it's really intelligent. And I guess all those things would add up over the different stores. Well, you know, there's something like three hundred thousand QSRs in the world, and you know, three hundred thousand times, you know, wasting, you know, fifteen kilowatt hours a day is, uh, you know, a thousand kilowatt hours is a ton. So that's around about four and a half thousand tons of greenhouse a day for nothing, right? And the payback in this is less than you know, it's three years. So I think the, another example, just to, to show the thinking, we did a large project at, uh, at Riches Bay Minerals. It was a mining, sand mining operation. And there they basically take out the heavy metals out of the sand, and which is only about 2% of the sand, right? So most of the sand is nice white sand. And that's called tailings, and they pump that back to us to you know back to where they took it from. And that's this operation had four of these sand mines, and they consumed about 50 megawatts of energy on the tailings because they've got to basically pump sand and water to move the sand around. They've got to pump pump it back to the stockpiles where they're refilling the sand dunes. And we basically showed them that if they could run higher density of sand to water, so Obviously, there's no benefit pumping water because you're trying to pump sand. So the less water you move, the better, but you must have some water, otherwise the sand will stop in the pipe and that's bad too. So we basically just said, Let's, you're putting too much water in the sand. We want to reduce that amount of water by giving the operators feedback about the, the system and its stability on these floating mines. And so we just started off with one one of the plants, and uh, we ended up with a 25% saving on a megawatt pump just by giving feedback to the operator on the, the gap between where they were pumping, like the, the gap of waste to the target of zero waste, and which sort of turned on its head what, the, like what they're normally encouraged to do is pump more is better. But we actually showed them, actually, by taking that philosophy, more is better, you actually end up creating more waste. So by showing them that by slowing things down a bit, they actually produce more. And so, you know, so we showed did the, on the gradual incrementalism approach, we did one operation, one pump, and then we did two, and then we did another pond, another pond, another pond, and totally got about uh, 12 and a half megawatts. And all required was just a re-education of, uh, and that had massive resistance from the engineers. Like that, that, was, a, that was a possibility. So it's, Simple, like these things aren't complex, right? They're typically simple, which is why it's always very embarrassing for everyone. <laughs> so, Francis, can you take me back a bit and give me a bit of background in terms of how you got into your profession, your journey, where you studied, and where you worked? Yeah, so interestingly, my DNA, my first job was uh, at Gladstone Power Station, which was a 1600 megawatt 
Coal Fire Power Station where I did an electrical future mechanic apprenticeship and also an associate diploma of electrical engineering. And then four years I worked at Gladstone Power Station, then I did a year at Collinsville Power Station and then two years at Tarong Power Station and doing essentially what was called control systems technician type work. And so, you know, I guess it was like that, that's when I was first exposed to like the scale of consumption of natural resources. One job I did was there's big conveyor belts that go into the power station from the coal mine and the, the conveyor belt has to be, we have that to weigh how much coal goes in because you've got to make sure you balance how much is going in versus how much they're using any one time. So you have a, what's called a belt weigher to check the weight of the coal at any one time going across the, from the coal mine into the power station. And uh, I was sitting at this, standing at this belt weigher on a conveyor belt, and this one belt was doing 1,500 tonnes of coal an hour going to what they call slot bunkers into two of the units at um, Toronto Power Station. And I had to stand there the whole, about two days, because you've got to basically do different tests and what have you on these systems. But I was just thinking, like, this can't go on forever. Like, you can't pump, like, like there's a finite resource of this bloody coal and you're pumping 1,500 tonnes an hour into these, you know, coal boilers. And the water consumption on these were 300 litres a second per boiler or per cooling tower. And so it was like this, this incredible volume I couldn't get my head around. And, um, and one of my other jobs was, weirdly, was uh, you know, they actually had a hydrogen plant because they use hydrogen to cool uh, part of the alternator, you know, generates electricity because it gets very hot, and it's an insula- hydrogen is an insulator. So they basically had a hydrogen plant, and how you calibrate the machine, how, how you had required to calibrate the machine, was to measure how much oxygen was in the air because that was a fixed number. And but there's a trend line showing oxygen levels dropping. I'm going. That's interesting. This can't go on forever, can it? Like we can't <laughs> keep on doing this. Uh, this is not good. So it was like. You know, just this confrontation with the physics of what was going on that challenged me. And so then I jumped into, I guess, the next major career move was going to sales in, uh, in Brisbane before the restructuring of the electricity sector. There's a thing called the Southeast Queensland Electricity Board. And I ended up getting a sales job at Stafford Branch for two years. Um, and that, and then I started, I was studying a university bachelor of business at that point. And I, the sales thing was obviously totally different to power station technician work. And, and I did a lot of training on sales and energy technology applications and what have you. And, and again, it, I was um, there, I was educated to say, whatever the question, electricity is the answer. So we go to our <laughs> clients and whatever the problem was, we'd find electricity solution for them. Yeah. And later, the sector I used to work for, became the forces of darkness. That's how we they, they were reconfigured in the language and around the people I used to hang out with when I was in government. The forces of darkness, what are they doing? And, uh, and that's where I... So I spent two years in the sales training. And then I did a... by Because I was studying economics and I was able to do energy modelling, um, I, by happenstance, by chance, got offered to be in a team for one year on a, on a research project on energy efficiency um, within SeekWeb. And um, classic was there, one of the jobs I did was we had to, there's a town called Bow Desert, which is uh, sort of southwest of Brisbane. Yep. And SeekWeb at the time were considering putting a new electrical feeder or a you know, main power line into Bow Desert because the current line has been overloaded. 
and they said, could you do an economic analysis to see if, if it's cost effective to put in you know, measures to reduce the peak demand to forestall the need for this line? And so as the as fibers on the team, we did an analysis to show that, hey, if we gave every house um, a gas cooktop, it turned out that the, the peak demand only occurred for 60 hours in the year. So this $20 million investment was driven by 20 hours of use in the winter peak time. And we said, okay, all we need to do is give every house in Bow Desert a gas stove, and which is only a thousand houses or something, right? Then that would actually save three megawatts enough to forestall the plant for at least you know four years and save us, you know, so it's cost effective to do it. Yeah. And we presented that and they said, Oh yeah, I like the idea, guys, but if we put in a gas stove, they might put it, they might actually then put in gas hot water, which would be really bad for us as a company. So we don't like that idea. <laughs> But aren't you owned by the government? Like, aren't you working for the people of Queensland? <laughs> uh, no, that concept didn't, so they, they, they didn't operate like that. That was all about, in fact, in economics, you, I don't know, have you studied economics at all? Uh, I, I, I did in school and then I did a little bit in uni and then I actually dropped out of economics and just went straight into marketing and advertising. So my micro is okay. My macro economics, I failed. Okay, so, so, so in micro, you know, there's different, there's, Monopolies, duopolies, yeah. um, private com- in competition. So when I, it was only like I could, because <laughs> I was studying economics at the time, right? It was like, okay, what's the purpose of a monopolist to maximise revenue, not to make maximise profits, to maximise revenue? Yeah. And, and, and you look at that sequent behaviour, and it's exactly that. It's not about creating value; it's creating revenue. And so, if it meant that society had to pay some more money, that's good because that's going to meet their objective of making more revenue. And it's like, you know, yeah, the more I was exposed to those, you know, market fundamentals, it was like, wow, that's actually what they do. It's like not a theory. That was pretty, so anyway, that was so I, when I was in that job, the government in Queensland had changed. It had been 30 years, it had been like National Party government. And then Wayne Goss won a Labor election in 1989. And in 1990, was basically the year, uh, so so 89, it was my one year in that energy efficiency team. At the start of 1990, I, the new Wayne Goss government announced they would stop a, a hydroelectric project called the Tully Mill Stream in North Queensland. They'd stop uh, progressing the project, which was I think, I think it was a one or $2 billion project. They'd stop progressing it uh, because the Greenies at the time supported Labor and Labor to get the Greenies support said that they would review the decision that the previous national government had made, national party government had made to build the Tully Mill Stream. And when yep. the original government, national party government made the decision, the evidence that was provided by the Queensland Electricity Commission to build the power station said that the power station would cost four cents a kilowatt hour and that the next closest uh, option for them was gonna be like, I think it was you know, 22 cents a kilowatt hour or something like that, very expensive. So it was clear that was the best solution based on the evidence given to the, the government. So the Queensland government committed to a, a review and that involved a $6 million uh, fund, fund and setting up an interdepartmental committee and they basically appointed consultants to review every aspect of the project. So they had a consultant to review the power station decision, a consultant to look at the power station options, a consultant to look at the environmental impacts, a consultant to look at the economic impacts, a consultant to look at energy management because one of the greenies was saying is that we could save more energy than we, we would need for that power station if we you know were using solar and what have you 
And so the, there was no energy management experts in Australia at the time, so the government engaged a US company called Energy Cybernetics, and uh, they were specialists in what was called demand-side management, which is basically how you save demand on, on the grid. This towing Western power station was only going to run as a peaking power station, so it only ran 20% of the time. So demand-side management was, was an option where you turn things off during the peak time, uh, or you could you know, alternately run a power station like a towing stream. So they were engaged to review those options and to examine whether solar was an option or not. And just towards the end of what the year, one year in that energy research team, we were invited to a presentation by um, Cybernetics on their software. So the five of us are in this, well, at that time it was like 1990, in 1990, there was a, like a server room. And so they had these big computers, you know, everyone had a computer going back to server. And so sitting there waiting for this meeting, uh, was this training, and in came two guys, which I didn't know they were, but one guy was Lance, who was this consultant for cybernetics. And the other guy was uh, Kevin Fryer, who was the head of the Queensland Electricity Commission Telemetry Street Project. So he was the guy to proponent of the project. And this Kevin Fryer said to Lance, uh, what, what have you found in your study so far? And Lance said, oh, well, we found uh, 2,000 megawatts of opportunity. And, like, I'd watched enough of this stuff to know what was going. Like, I knew it was a 600 megawatt power station. Obviously, we'd been reading about the work these guys are doing because we were in the same sort of gap. We were in a secret version of that, you know, like energy management and stuff. So he said, 2,000 megawatts. My ears picked up. 2,000 megawatts? Like 600 megawatt power station. That seems like that's interesting. Uh, then he went on to say, like, oh, yeah, 1,200 megawatts of this and 400 megawatts of that and 300 megawatts of that. And then Kevin Fryer says, I don't think the commissioner would like that sort of report to come out from your studies. Oh, is that right? What would he like? Oh, well, I think... <laughs> Acknowledging the work that QEC has done on 300 megawatts of off-peak power for hot water and the 150 megawatt pumping program, and yeah, there's obviously potential for other things, and we can investigate that. And like, and coincidentally, I was you know living in orderly, and uh, but a rabid trying to stop you know uh, I was a rabid buddy local what we call it like campaigner trying to stop rat running in my community, so I joined the local progress association. And the and I've been in that group for a couple of years, stopping you know, to do roundabouts and traffic calming and stuff. Yeah. And uh, I was secretary of the association, and the president at the time was a guy called Pat Combin, who became the first minister of the environment under Wayne Goss. So it was like, so I knew, uh, you know, I knew the, who the minister for environment was. And uh, so anyway, this guy says, "Oh yeah, you know, I understand. Oh, okay, thank you." The, the training went on. And then when the report got released, this is the million-dollar report from Synergics, Synergics Corporation, they said uh, exactly what Kevin Fryer said. That's what the report said. It was like, oh, oh my God, <laughs> like, this is bad. Like, these guys in the media, the government was saying, we've got independent consultants advice, giving us the best global advice. We've got, you know, U.S. consultants, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like, you know, gobsmacked. Like, yeah. what's happening? This is like, this is wrong, you know. So because I was interested in what the analysis was saying, I started doing my own little economic models. So, um, and I looked at alternatives to telling Millstream myself, you know, and anyway, so when the report came out saying it was, you know, like it was clearly corrupt, I dropped a, a note into the letterbox of uh, 
Pat Conman, because he lived about three blocks from my house in Orderly, he was in the Grange, and I just said, uh, Pat, you you think you're getting independent advice, but this is actually, advice is rigged. You guys aren't getting independent advice. Um, and I think there are many, there are several alternatives that haven't been set, you know, looked at properly. And so, uh, so, and at the same time, I saw a, uh, yeah, turn my TV on, and there's a woman, Dr. Alakita, talking about, you know, she's, her big project is now to stop telling all stream. And uh, the big environmental issue was the area was above the, like, obviously there's a, there's a tableland and then there's the river. And so they were going to basically, we, the project was damming a river called the Mill Stream and, yep. dam, and flooding and create another dam to the west. Uh, all that area is actually World Heritage listed rainforest. So it required the federal government, under the federal government legislation, it says there, there can be no prudent or feasible alternatives if you are to destroy a World Heritage area. So she was basically saying that, you know, that she believes the environmental impacts were very high and based on that, they wouldn't go ahead with the project. And uh, so I rang her after that and said, I think you should notice what's going on. I mean, you guys are going to be, you guys are getting, you know, going to be duped here. Mm. So we met with the ILA and, uh, you know, and ended up working with her for about six months uh, or three months initially to write a report because there was public submission. Once the reports became public, there was a submission process where people asked to comment on the demand management report, on the power station report, on the, um, on the environmental report, et cetera. So I, I, I basically went to her place every night, helped her with ideas, and she, you know, formulated the response from the Rainforest Conservation Society. At the same time, I was working in SeekWeb and leaking information to her that I think I would have been sacked for if, if I would have known. Because like <laughs> Seek was doing some really bad things, like the dockside apartments, which were you know where you go across the Story Bridge. The dockside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually stayed in the dockside apartments when we moved to Brisbane. Okay, right. Well, yeah. so you'd be happy to know that they the that SeekWeb paid them uh, or gave every unit a free electric water heater if the development banned gas from going to the site. <laughs> and uh, considering there's like I don't know a lot of apartments, right? And you think of electrical water systems. So that so it turned out that the sales guy who did that project had a personal target of one percent increase in demand. Uh, my target was 1%. My boss's target was 1%. So eventually there's a lot of demand being created from deals that are just unconscionable in you know, any normal consideration except if you're a monopolist. Yeah. Um, and so so basically after I dropped the note in Pacom's letterbox, uh, I ended up getting a phone, I got a phone call one day from his private secretary saying, oh, the minister would like to see you. Can you come up next week to you know share your ideas? Uh Sure. Okay. So, um, so still, still do my SQL analysis, helping I write some stuff. Then went up to the 21st floor of one 120 Ann Street um, to meet the minister. And I was expecting just to have a meeting with just with Pat Common. And so I was taken into an office and then opened the door and there's like 12 people: the director general, deputy director general, head of the the representative on the interdepartmental committee. The cabinet liaison officer, the head of the department, you know, like all these guys. And Pat Commons says, oh, welcome, Francis. So, so what's your idea about the Mill Stream? And like I hadn't prepared the presentation. I thought it was just going to have a chat. So, so I just, so I said, we've got a bit of paper. So they gave me a bit of paper and a pencil and I just sort of, what's my thinking? 
you know, you've got these two old power stations, uh, Collinsville and uh, and Calide A. They're 300 megawatts between them. If we open them back up, the cost is very low and blah, blah, blah. And we did, you know, so much energy management and so sort of drew a bit of a picture of, um, you know, of a plan. And, but, you know, it's pretty rough and sketchy. Then he said, oh, thank you very much. And no questions. And I was leaving uh, the office. I was walking to the lift. There was this, oh, Frank. Um, and it was, a guy, it was a director general, a guy called Dr. Craig Emerson. Said, uh, oh, I like your ideas. Would you like to come and work with me for you know for a bit to see if we can um, you know put these ideas together to 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 stop this this project? And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. So uh, so basically, um, for two two weeks, I sort of moonlighted. I was working. I'd go into the office for SeekWeb, do a few hours, and I'd drive up to the Department of Environments, you know, twenty first floor, spend some time with Craig and reports and. Then I'd go to Iowa at night. Uh, so I had like, and then after a few weeks, I was like, oh, this is going to be hairy. Uh, I'm like gonna, a double you know, agent. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to get a bloody target on my head or something. <laughs> so I said, Craig, can you give me a job? Like, okay. So he offered me a job, gave me a job. I resigned from SeekWeb. And I think it was actually weirdly, it was like, we're just talking about this, is like two weeks before um, my 10 years long service leave. Oh, that's, so, bad. that's bad timing. You should have at least waited yeah, and got really the uh, gold, gold watch or something or at least the long service leave, yeah. Yeah, it was like very unfortunate timing. <laughs> so then I basically, um, so, the, so then we basically, yeah, spent that year I worked with Craig. But the first thing was we had to, you know, he said, if we do not provide an alternative to this scheme, it's not going to happen. Like, you know, the government will not be able to not approve it. So what we're going to do is destroy the credibility of the reports. So we went, so the, and I guess I'll keep this short because otherwise it'll go on forever. But essentially, the alternative that was proposed against Tully Stream by the Quincy QEC was diesel-fired gas turbines, which means it's about 25 cents a kilowatt hour versus their so-called four cents. And so there's a note in the report saying uh, natural gas was considered, but the Queensland gas report says there's no gas uh, available for this purpose. There's no, you know, not, not enough gas. And uh, so that's not a viable option. So I came back to Craig and said, Craig, it says that there's no gas in Queensland and that's why gas was never considered and stuff. So he got on to the, straight away got on the phone, I want to speak to the CEO of Santos. Uh, he's the gas producer in Queensland. Yeah. So uh, next day we go to a meeting with the CEO and the head of technical for Santos. And Craig said, well, I've he said, what do you want? He said uh, to Craig, and Craig said, well, what I want is I want to know if you've got some natural gas available I can run a power station on. And the CEO said, well, how much gas do you need and when do you want it? He said, oh, we need about 20 petadrills. Um, we need it in five years' time. He said, no problems. I can give you that. He's <laughs> like, what? But there's no gas in Queensland. Oh, well, there's no gas until we look. Obviously, we're not going to look if there's a, no demand. So <laughs> you get a demand, we'll find the gas. So that was the first big breakthrough. And the second big breakthrough came about when we looked at Tully Millstream closely. We started analysing the, the, the reports. And it said there was an, so it said the power station was going to produce 1,000 gigawatt hours a year. And that's what they braced the four cents a kilowatt on, kilowatt hour price on. Uh, but it turned out that there was an existing power station there called Korea, which is still there and running now. <clears throat> In their report, it said that Korea was going to be, um, shut down because it'd been running 50 years and that water will be diverted to this tiny mill stream. The significance of this is that if that power station continued to run like it was viable, didn't need to be shut down, 
then in economics, you've got to take only the incremental benefit to your new project. So again, I went back to Craig and you know, like to show you that like the like cleverness, the astuteness of Craig, he said straight away, who built the power station? I was the Snowy Mountains Hydro Authority. Okay, bring the CEO. Bring the CEO. Uh, want to talk to someone about the career power station. Um, yep, he's, I built that power station, actually. The guy he rang said. So he said, uh, so I've got a problem. Apparently in five years' time, I've got to shut it down because it's too old. He said, mate, are you on drugs? Like, it's a <laughs> concrete and steel. Nothing to break. Like, it'll run another 100 years. Oh, maybe you've got to spend seven million bucks or something. But, you know, like, it's, this is run for another hundred years. Oh, right. Okay. So instead of being a thousand gigawatt power station, it was actually now a 300 gigawatt hour power station. Instead of being four cents a kilowatt hour, now it's 16 cents a kilowatt hour. Ah, that's a bit different economic sort of, uh, you know. So when what I was exposed to in that year was the power of ra- rationality, the power of facts and questioning everything. Like yeah. no, nothing, never believe anything anyone says unless you can get it validated. And so, in seeing that, you know, after you know, at the end of the year, that you know, the, they did make a decision not to build the Tallinn North Stream because there were better and more prudent and feasible alternatives. And and I guess that experience is like it's you know, like with serious amounts of confidence, I can feel okay questioning people, asserting facts against opinion. And where I guess that has, you know, so in future projects like that, I don't realise how much I've learnt about the power of facts until I'm in a situation where, you know, I see people around me collapsing, but it's like, guys, let's get to the facts and yeah. then let's then make a decision. And so that's been the foundation, I think, of all the work I've done and, you know, I would never have had that understanding like seeing you know, stopping a 600 billion dollar million dollar power station or billion dollar power station oh that's the other thing it was a it was a it was claimed to be a 600 million dollar power station but when we looked at the financial cash flows they didn't take account interest during construction and power stations take seven years to build so it turned out to be a billion dollar power station so taking account the fact that only makes 300 gigawatt hours not a thousand taking account it costs 600 million not a billion not a 600 million it was actually 22 cents a kilowatt hour yeah so not only was it expensive, but it was going to demolish some, you know, a national heritage yeah. listed site. Yeah. 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 It's good that you guys were there to uh, stop it. Yeah, well, it was, it was definitely a, you know, took, you know, there's multiple levels of, like it was only because Craig Emerson could brief Wayne Goss directly. He used to be, before Craig started, he was the environmental advisor to Bob Hawke and then he took the job as Director General of Environment, if he could um, brief the Premier directly himself. And if he couldn't have done that, this couldn't have been stopped. Because essentially, every department, except Environment, supported the project. Yeah. The Mines and Energy, Premiers, Industry, blah, blah, they all supported the project. And it was only the little Environment Department, that end of the day, one day, but it was based on economics, which was really, and obviously the environmental impacts were significant. Um, so, yeah, it was very... Uh, yeah, you know, that that I so said that became became part of my DNA, and that led me into the um, the my next sort of major venture in my life before I got into business, which was the Alternative Energy Advisory Group, and it was there I, I got uh, you know for going from power station a six hundred megawatt power station down to now looking at ten kilowatt supplies for um, farms and uh, you know areas in the Daintree was like 
but as I say, it, it turns out it's all the same type of analysis. And so... We might talk about Insight. So how did you launch Insight? Well, at the end of the in 1996, after winning the... We actually went, won our National Energy Award for the work we did in this alternative energy advisory group for power for the Daintree and for the Boulia area. And, and I had to actually set up a, a, a company to contract back, back to the department to finish work. And, and so when I was, had done that, I finished, actually I started another job with a, a company called Energy Equity and I was, in the, I was what was called a financial engineer. You know, I was working on basically gas turbine power solutions for mine sites and when I was several months into that, I got a phone call by Rod Welford, who was then the opposition spokesman for the environment in 1998. And he told me I should contact uh, Ron Clark, who was building a resort called Corinne Cove Island Resort on Stradbroke Island, uh, because he had a power problem and maybe I could help him. And so I, yeah, so basically I went to Ron Clark and met his project manager Peter Woolley and you know he showed me that they'd got it you know they're building a 12 megawatt power station or 12,000 kilowatt power station and in fact when I turned up that day um the the fax machine went off and he said oh it's not 12 megawatts now it's 14 megawatts oh it's another two million dollars more uh gee it's a shame I've only got you know to- I think the total they were needing a, the, the tender was going to be eight million dollars and they only had you know two million dollars in their budget and so I said, look, I've done, you know, did this project in, you know, for the government, looking at remote area power and stuff. I'm, I could use this model on the resort. I'm sure I can, you know, look at how we could uh, save power for your, your operation. And because uh, I knew that, you know, the model we developed, we called a resource analyzer then, had worked on these remote areas and we used that to design all our systems. So then I, you know, I think it was $12,000 was the consultancy to review their power, the power demand. So that was my first contract, was $12,000 to review their, their power demand at uh, Karenko Resort. And it came back with a conclusion that they could take their power demand from about 10,000 kilowatts to 600 kilowatts if they did an integrated supply, integrated supply solution for their resort. And then Peter, Wall, Peter sorry, uh, Ron Clark said, okay, uh, I accept your proposal, but you need to build and run the power station and also take responsibility for the you know, all the things you're recommending, so on the energy use side. And, uh, okay, so accepted that, and it was like, I think the first check after that was $50,000, which was what I'd basically earn in a year. I got paid after one month. Uh, <laughs> and that, that, I think that contract ended up getting about $3 million I was paid over you know, the next two and a half years and ended up with a dozen staff, you know, working on that project 98 to 2000 and then we end up running the power station for three years and that won an Australian Engineering Excellence Award and an Australian Environmental Award. But what was interesting was I thought that that would actually open a lot of doors but it opened no doors. Essentially it was like and it shows that marketing is so critical and I still haven't cracked that. And so while I ended up doing a lot of hotel analysis, I was, uh, was never able to because there was a unique set of experience, opportunities where the owner was building something and they had a direct impact on their bottom line versus normal hotels are built by somebody, operated by somebody else. There's all these split incentives. And so, yeah, that project was an amazing experience. It proved to me you could save 90% on the energy on most 
commercial type operations cost effectively and prove the software, you know, was, was able to model these complex, you know, it was 1,200 units on that site plus a whole lot of, you know, pools and, you know, pumping stations, et cetera. Um, and there's a whole lot of stories in there about, you know, how that nearly came apart about a dozen times from major stuff-ups from other engineering companies who were involved. And weirdly, it was the same company that did the towing millstream project <laughs> on, the, on the power station side. I reckon I could make a business just following that company around, fixing their fuck-ups. <laughs> uh, that's not what I want to do, right? So it's boring, so I didn't do it. So, yeah, so I think that was my, yeah, that was my foray into business was the Korean Cove Island Resort. And then I sort of made a commitment to, okay, what if I could apply this to commercial offices? What if I could apply this to, you know, shopping centres and uh, residential developments? So then I pursued these projects for the next 10 years and then got to 2012 and it was like, uh, I went to a meeting with, was with um, a company called Cole and Allied, which was uh, owned by Rio Tinto in Newcastle. And they were, they were doing a land swap with New South Wales government, which allowed them to do a 3,000 lot land subdivision over five sites. I ended up doing their um, sustainability consulting. And I did uh, the Kelvin Grove Village back in early 2000s, showing that we could save like 90% of the peak demand and 85% of the energy use just by basic design changes. And so I'm thinking, well, there'd be nothing for me to do. Like this stuff's all in 2012, like 12, 10 years later, like everyone knows how to do this stuff. <laughs> and it was, uh, went to the meeting and it, they, the same stuff that I saw 12 years ago was presented as what they were going to do. And it's like, what? But I cannot, here I was thinking I'm changing the world by doing these amazing projects and no one, no one cares or takes any notice or copies. Like it's <laughs> like, oh, okay, I'm thinking I'm wasting my time doing this. So what can I do, you know, I don't want to write any more reports or do any more like these greenfield projects because it doesn't matter. So how can we make a difference? Well, let's focus on the biggest, hairiest uses of energy, which was the industrial sector and the mining sector. And the guys with the time, the guys with the time said, um, look, I know the CEO of a copper mine in South Africa. We should ring him. I know they've got problems with electricity. Uh, okay. So we rang him the next day and two days later, I'm on a plane flying to Johannesburg from Brisbane and, and then uh, identified they could save 40% of the electricity at the copper mine. And it's like, oh, my God, this is doesn't matter where we go. It's the same bloody answer. You know, <laughs> massive savings, all cost-effectively can be achieved, just needs a way of, you know, structuring and thinking about things. So that's how I ended up in South Africa. And I guess it was moving, you know, that was a consulting business, but it was done in a risk-based model. <laughs> And to get to the point where this year, like a year, like at the start of the conversation, it was like, what's your, what's, what's your biggest highlight? And it's really about going from a fundamentally a consulting business to a technology based business so we can get scale and replication if we're going to get the gigaton. And like I think you said, your reflection that having the big target, the mind somehow has to solve that problem. And I'm sure if we never set the gigaton target, we would never have set up these technology based, uh, you know, approaches to energy management. Yeah, that's great. So Francis, what are some challenges that your industry faces? I mean, it sounds like one is not learning from previous success stories or copying your work, but um, what are some frustrations that you have with the industry? There's this thing called split incentives where if you take a shopping mall, the electricity account's paid by the shop owner, but the infrastructure is owned by the shopping mall. So how do you get, what's in it for the shopping mall owner to improve their efficiency? There's no, no benefit. You know, the guy in the shop has no control over the infrastructure. So what can he do about it? 
so that you take that approach to you know every sector like there's a lot of these split incentives where it's not really clear how you the waste is there everyone can see the waste there's short paybacks but you can't get the financial linkages to get someone to act yeah Uh, that's one area the other area is like in this mining space we're in what happens is the focus is so much on production you can have these brilliant projects which have you know, massive megawatt savings and you know, short paybacks, but essentially it's not production focused. It just doesn't get attention. And so, so frustration is, is like there's a strong business case. How can we not motivate someone to want to support it within the structure of these, you know, of a large mining company? Obviously, so, you know, obviously we've worked on mining companies implementing projects, but even then it's still not core business it's like on the outside so the frustration is how do we create energy and greenhouse and water those resource-based opportunities should be the core operational function of those businesses and and but it's not it's like it's just what we do to do our main job which is produce platinum or copper yeah and i think if you once we cross that nexus i think you know I, i believe there's well not just me mckinsey uh, you know, there's global consultants, IEA, International Energy Agency. You know, there's 50% waste at least in these industrial sites. Yeah. How do we capture that waste? And it's, you know, I'm doing some work now with a, you know, with a big platinum operation and it's like there's this fundamental disconnect from a site-based operation to a divisional level in the company to the group level about, you know, how to actually implement energy savings when... There's, you know, the guys on site, they're only measured on production. Yeah. And if you actually distract them too much and doing energy savings, they're not going to do their production work and then the business will go broke anyway versus the head office guys who have the vision of a carbon neutral company. But again, split incentives between what they want and what the site wants are different. So it's very, and I think that, that's what we're trying to, you know, we're solving with Inspira by giving them a software tool for their management, but they've still got to solve problems internally about, financial incentives and making money available because the last thing you want the sites to do is not to is to do a project on energy and not do a project on production because then it's you know then they're giving up their business yeah and at the moment that's how it's currently structured so uh, i don't know the answer to that but you know we need to solve it if we're going to get big savings so so the other one uh, the third point i think would be access to finances because you know energy it's you you can't see it uh, special protocols are written so you can actually, you know, create a standardization reporting savings. But banks aren't used to dealing with it. So before I go to a bank and go, oh, I've got a international performance measure- measurement and verification protocol report on savings I can achieve at this operation. Will you fund it? They just they don't know what you're talking about. Like, I want to build, you know, they're happy to fund a motor or they're happy to fund a, you know, a building, but they can't work out savings. And so I know in the US, the company we work with in, Hillsborough County, uh, Generate Capital, they actually raised a billion dollars late last year. And actually the Queensland QIC, the Queensland Investment Corporation, actually invested $500 million with them. But that company as a financial institution is set up for energy projects. But like, and like a billion dollars is like a lot of money, but in the scheme of things, it's just a drop in the ocean compared to the whole market of finances. But that's that's where I think the solution will be is that it's going to have to come from those maybe... You know, specialist lenders, and hopefully the demand picks up so much that that becomes like common and not 
you know, at the moment, like a specialist lender has to, you have to find someone to do that lending. So back to what you were saying before in terms of the, like getting people to on board with their solutions, it must be incredibly frustrating the misconception that, you know, to be green means to be less profitable. You know, it's a cost that you give up. But we often think there's a profitable choice and that means destroying the environment or there's an yeah. environmental choice and that means sacrificing profit or sacrificing production. Is that something that you guys seek to challenge and fight? Yeah, that originally one of my goals was to, if you had asked me in 2010, I would have said, uh, what's, what's my purpose is to dispel the myth that, you know, addressing climate change should cost, you know, that we can actually profit from, you know, businesses, businesses can profit from addressing climate change. It doesn't have to come to cost. And, but I guess I found that for some reason that no one actually can, the, the, there's no listening for that. You know, it's not, the narrative is just so strong. Look, I'm just blown away during this coronavirus situation, how the narrative around climate change has come up in that. And like, you know, and it's like, oh, we're surviving now on 60% of our current greenhouse emissions. Let's continue that. Not realizing that the economy is destroyed and there's no activity. But that seems like to the green side is like, oh, yeah, we want to go back to, you know, I guess uh, wooden pick, picks and shovels and stuff. <laughs> it's like uh, that's the alternative versus, but that's actually what they're saying. It's like, oh my God, guys, stop. Yeah, there's, there's not much airline travel happening at the moment. I don't know. I've <laughs> realized that that's probably helping, helping that saving. Well, yeah, but, but what about the airline shaming issues? Like yeah. that stuff, you know, it's happened in Europe. Like, you know, shaming of people flying. It's like just insane. So, yeah, that, that myth is just pervasive. And, and I, I think I go by the that gradual incrementalism, you know, like, well, let's just do one thing at a time. You know, we get one business on board. They buy into it. They, they see it for themselves. Let's get the next business on board. And, you know, let's get one sector, you know, like let's say the, you know, we're currently nibbling away, nibbling away at mining. We're, you know, starting to nibble away at the quin- the quick service restaurants and we're starting on supermarkets now actually because um, the QSR is actually shut at the moment in South Africa. Well, they can operate, but only with deliveries. And so, you know, they're not operating basically. Yeah. And uh, the, the guy we know with 60 stores, he's only got six stores operating and they're losing wow. money. So so we're now pivoted to look at supermarkets, but it's the same the same stuff like uh you do one supermarket like you know you go to Woolworths they're not going to listen to us because they're, they're you know they're already you know, doing this stuff apparently and so we go to a privateer with 12 supermarkets and let's work with that privateer and once we do the you know the privateers and then he'll go to another like there's a bit like IGA in Australia there's a spa uh, it's spa and they're owned by franchisees so we'll, I think our strategy is we want to convert sectors and you've got to start with what, who has the most pain and who's most willing to transform. And so, um, you know, with QSRs, let's, you know, stick with the guys who they're all, they've got so thin margins that they're very keen to make savings. Supermarkets, uh, let's deal with the privateers and then we'll get into the bigger guys later um, and we'll cut our teeth. And, you know, I guess also my experience of working with business owners, they're much more attuned to, you know, money, value, cash flow than a big corporation because, um, you know, it's just a different mindset, isn't it? Yeah. So, so that's what we're currently doing with, that's what I like about, you know, True Blue, who's the company we're working with on the 60 stores. I mean, it's one guy, Cubane. Deal with him. If he's happy, like the, he'll move forward versus trying to deal with, you know, 
uh, like a, in a sense, like a, a public company, it's a totally different sort of uh, set of relationships. And the Spa Pluses that we're dealing with, they're called Plus Stores. It's, he has 12 stores. He wants to save money. Okay, great. Let's, let's help him save money by saving energy and saving the planet at the same time. Yeah. And in that process, we'll learn also, we'll cut our teeth on supermarkets. We've got this really, really exciting concept we're working on, which is using an old technology called Eutectic to convert. We want to do one supermarket where we run it fully on this Eutectic technology, which is Eutectic is a, is a phase change of a substance going from a liquid to a solid or a solid to a liquid. And, um, and so essentially Eutectic is what I used in the, in the that project in Boya and Daintree um, to convert refrigeration to run on solar and eliminates the need for batteries and essentially use ice as the medium. So the maths around it is that a litre of water stores 4.18 kilojoules per degree C that you, you know, change, either raise or lower, but uh, there's 20,000 kilojoules of stored energy in a kilogram of ice. So it's like a 300, factor of 300 um, difference between them. Actually, factor 80, factor 80 difference between them. And so what that means is if you put a kilo of ice, 10 kilos of ice, you can run a fridge for 24 hours if you can, if you can manage the temperature. And so there's technologies around doing that. So we want to basically put this technology into one supermarket and we believe the energy savings or cost savings have been the order of 75%. Wow. Typically a 50% reduction on just on the uh, energy and then because you can manage when you run it, you can then optimise that. That's where you get the other 25%. So, um, and then, then all of a sudden you've got a technology that runs for six, six hours a day only to store the energy for the rest of the day, which is perfect for solar. And now the solar issue of batteries goes away as a problem. Yeah. So that's what we're playing with. And we're doing that both in the QSR and the uh, supermarket space. So with the QSR and the supermarket, you said before the reason they buy this or go with you is, is a cost-saving method, the idea to save money on energy or resources. Is it the same with mines? Are they looking for cost savings or are they looking to hit carbon emission targets and things like that? Yeah. The, well, obviously, Yum Brands International and KFC, have, you know, they have serious targets for greenhouse reduction. And uh, was, you know, maybe the property supermarket guys don't, but Woolworths does, and so does the big pick and pays and what have you. So mines, uh, yeah, they do have greenhouse targets. I mean, Rio Tinto has recently announced like 400 million US dollars investment in you know climate change stuff, and, uh, and Anglo American knows committed to carbon neutral operations, um, and so. So I think that the issue is is that it's the you know there's a there's like the leadership of the business and then there's the guys on site and so what we do is create the connection between the guys on site and the leadership so create close that gap because the guys on site are really around production and you really don't want them distracted by greenhouse targets but essentially everything's driven by the P and L so you know how do I Obviously, they can't control the price. They can only control the volume. Price is set by the market, and then they can control their costs. So what my view with the mining is that it's the empowerment of the sites and giving them access to doing you know, funding uh, to fund energy-saving projects that will be also a benefit to the bottom line, not doing projects that you know don't make financial sense. I mean, we've been, I've seen some disastrous projects where they've spent millions of dollars 
and it was not a good, you know, it was a dumb idea and dumb result. But you know, you may as well just burn, you should have burnt the money. I mean, it's just crazy. <laughs> Uh, because like it's that when you act in a way that's not consistent with sound business principles, you're always going to go, you know, a bit pear shaped. Yeah. I mean, the, the, like one of the things that <laughs> uh, uh, there's a uh, I can't remember his name. He's a, he's a scholar in um, Denmark or Sweden, and he basically pushes rationality. And I think he's Jorn, uh, and he basically he's quite quite famous, and he's. Greenies don't like him because he says that, you know, it's a bit like, he says what I say, that, you know, uh, we shouldn't do things just because, you know, it looks good for the environment. We should do it because it makes sense for business and it's good for the environment, happens to be good for the environment. And so one of the issues is, he says, is if you take the UN environmental goals, which there's 25, he says, how does anyone do 25 goals? Like, maybe you do three. Yeah. And so what happens is when you get, when you get too many things, to fo- you can't focus when you've got 25 things. You focus on two or three things. So you take all the greenhouse at mines is generated at site. Okay, well, we don't want them to focus on 25 goals. Let's focus on two goals. Make sure your production's run, keep your costs down, minimize your energy use. Okay, focus on that. And then, oh, by the way, that'll create great greenhouse results. So I think, but that somehow gets lost, you know, in the rhetoric where, you know, it's all about greenhouse. Where to me, greenhouse is the result. Is energy is a proxy for greenhouse. So whatever you do in energy, you're going to get the result in greenhouse. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, I'm very because I'm you know, I did an economics degree. I'm very much uh, a business person. Like I think if you give people rational choices, they will typically choose what's best for the business. And I guess my I can understand how the sites why they don't do things. Like when you, I would say, why don't you do it? Well, because it distracts them from actually making the money, which is what their main game is. And and so it's like, okay, how do we create a system that doesn't distract them from that? And one is you, you've got to integrate it into the business as an operational sort of paradigm, but also support them with the resources they need to implement and support, you know, efficient operation. So, um, which is easy to say, much harder to do. Yeah. So Francis, I want to talk a bit more about this cactus gas because I'm fascinated by it. But um, is there, are there any projects that you can share that are going to use this type of technology that you guys are working on? Well, I guess right now we're, we've identified a market in a city called Port Elizabeth. Um, and essentially it's, we're looking at leasing a 1,600-hectare uh, farm there, of which is about 1,000 hectares suitable for cactus planting. And we've actually secured a contract for 700,000 calodes, which are the plants that you plant and doing negotiations this week for that supply to finalise a contract for the supply. And they'll be planted in September, October, November on the land. So we've essentially, over the next two months, we've got to secure the land uh, and get it ready for planting. We only plant initially 100 hectares because you build what's called a nursery stock. And the amazing thing about cactus is if you plant one leaf or one calode, in 12 months that'll have 10 leaves also come off that one leaf. So for every one you plant, you get 10 you can replant. So if we plant 700,000, we'll have 7 million uh, plants we can plant in twenty in September 2021. So essentially our goal is to do 100 hectares this year and then from the 7 million, we'll be able to plant out the 1,000 hectares. The density is around about the 20,000 plants per hectare. Um, so, you know, so we'll need 20 million plants. So what happens is it'll be... In 2022, when it's fully dense, densely planted, 
and then we'll do first harvest in 2023, the rock, 2023. And what we're targeting there is actually um, is, is the businesses that consume LPG. So, you know, quick service restaurants, restaurants, catering facilities, factories uh, will be our target. And our guarantee essentially is we'll, we'll match the price, you know, less 10% on your current price and it's 100% renewable energy. And we've pitched that to um, buyers, you know, in South Africa and every time we've – people want they want to sign up. So we're very confident we can uh, – Port, Port Elizabeth will be our first, you know, market, uh, launch into the market there. And that 1,000 hectares will save 60,000 tonnes of greenhouse a year. So, wow. you know, going to the gigaton, the 1,000 um, million, million tonnes, yep. it's like a – you know, I think Cactus is going to play a big role in that. And um, in the application, I guess what we're doing now is proving the farming model. We're proving the harvesting model. And we've identified, uh, we're doing actually a proof of concept this year, which will go for about eight months, where we're, we're running the, what they call the digester, the thing that converts the cactus into gas. We're running three little plants and we're going to be doing experiments and tests, uh, come up with the optimal mix of um, what they call inoculant, which is the, like, to be added a bit of manure to it, a bit of either cow manure, chicken manure, to the mix of cactus to get good methane production. So we're doing those sort of tests over the next several months and come up with our formula we're going to use for the Port Elizabeth project. So, yeah, the, that's, um, that's I, I believe, is going to be quite suitable to bring to Australia too. So we're keen to obviously hone it out. Yeah, right. and it's typically weirdly near like the gas areas. So, yeah. and that's Surat Basin in Queensland, which feeds also New South Wales and um, and South South Australia and Queensland. So, you know, big. Uh, I was I think I did the maths. It's like three hundred thousand hectares of cactus will supply this eastern seaboard Australia's natural gas requirements by hundred percent. Wow. The interesting thing is that we, what we've created is this concept of uh, power generation pods. So we were looking at how we could you know, supply mines with electricity and we've come up with this concept of um, every 1,000 hectares we can do, or every 4,000 hectares, so one, four 1,000 hectare lots, each one with a 12 megawatt generator, and then we put in a waste heat recovery boiler. So we end up with 63 megawatts for every uh, 4,000 hectares that can run 24 hours a day. So then, then you create pods versus doing these massive, big centralized solutions. And so this distributed concept, I think, is something that could be very um, make sense from a production point of view, from a harvesting point of view, and uh, you know, from an economics point of view. And so then we've got twenty-four hour power from one hundred percent bioenergy. Yeah, that's cool. Francis, I want to move on to some personal questions on you. Do you have any favorite books? I do. There's some books after I read them was like, you know, changed my thinking. And uh, I think of three books. And the first one was Factor Four. And his concept was, the guy, the author was Zane Lovins. His concept was, uh, if we can reduce, if we actually give people, we'll, we'll call it the consumer, the need, the energy need they, they want, service, if we can do that efficient, more efficiently, you can get four to one benefit back at the electricity grid. So what, what does he mean by that? Well, several years ago, it was very normal to have a 20-litre shower in a, in a shower head, you know, to have a shower. 
and and he's saying, so what's the need of the shower? What's the person trying to do in a shower? They're wanting to clean themselves. They're wanting to refresh. Um, so the amount of water, you just want enough water so that experience is, is positive. So how much water is that? And uh, I think, you know, if you even go back 20 years ago, maybe a shower used to be 30 litres a minute. Well, now we know with good technology and design, you can have a quality shower at nine litres a minute. So that hot water that's going to that shower, when it's it's typically making up 50% of your water use. So when you're using 20 litre a minute shower, 10 litres a minute is hot water, or nine litre a minute shower where four half litre a minute is hot water, that hot, that reduction at end use is a 50% reduction in of your water, hot water use, but it actually wraps up to obviously a 50% reduction, maybe 60% reduction in your hot water system because you've got less losses and stuff. And at a power station where your conversion efficiency is about 35%, that that 50% reduction in your hot water use ends up being uh, a 75% reduction in how much coal's needed you know, in terms of the fundamental waste of energy down that value chain. So that concept of thinking, always go to the point of where you're using energy and look at the best way of meeting the needs of the customer. You never should be compromising the need, um, but meet the need the most efficient way you can. That concept is the basis of my whole business. <laughs> and it's so simple, but radically shifts the focus. Where normal engineering is all about technology versus the actual outcome. And then when I started university doing my economics, I, I came across a book called Sustainability and Policy. It was actually prescribed reading for one of the subjects I was doing. I think it was environmental economics. And the author came up with a, with a way of expressing how much energy as a society we use by creating a concept called human equivalence. And he went back and said, okay, when you were hunter-gatherer, when we were hunter-gatherers, how much energy do we use a day? And essentially, a human requires, it's called 10 megajoules a day of energy, or 10,000 kilojoules. So, you know, a bit less for women, a bit more for, you know, larger, you know, more um, um, active men. But, you know, let's say 10 megajoules a day. So how much energy did they use to, how much did they consume to meet that need? And it's around basically about 10 megajoules because they would exercise to hunt for the animals or exercise to garden, and then they'd just cook it. So it was around about the 10 megajoules. Then he goes on to, you know, track through each evolution of society to go how much energy was needed to the Middle Ages where it was maybe 100 megajoules, to modern-day society where it's a 1,000 times a human equivalent. So the wow. average human in Western society needs you know, a 1,000 times the actual requirement of food to sustain themselves. And, and so then that little idea, when you then look at you know, outside the window of your house at night, like I look outside my window here, I see the suburbs around me. All that lighting that you see is parasitic energy we absorb to maintain this, you know, our um, suburbs with enough light to what we perceive to be safe. But it's like, that's a very new concept, right? Like 100 years ago, that didn't exist. All the water pumping infrastructure, you know, when we have a shower, it's all come from water pumps down the down a whole pipeline to when it goes into sewage, into the sewage system where it gets pumped and, and then treated and pumped again. All that is like seen as a parasitic energy to maintain our lifestyle. And then you think of a car, if you are driving around. And so it just got me, you know, like it's, it's a way of thinking that exposes the huge amount of energy we need to run our society. And then the question is, well, hey, we shouldn't waste that. We should be 
you know, we should be more, we should be efficient in whatever we do uh, as human beings. And a thousand times our actual requirement of food, energy in food is uh, maybe it's out of kilter to what actually is, what's the real need. Not to say we do without things, but it's more questioning what we're doing, how we're doing it, is there smarter and better ways. And so the third book was I came across, which which actually was just by accident in about 1996, and it was called The Last of the Ancient Sunlight. And the author, Hartman, he basically says that everything we do in our society, all energy use, essentially, like 98% of it, you know, in terms of you know, consuming petrol in cars, coal for power stations, gas for ho- cooking, this is all actual ancient sunlight that was captured by plankton or plants or trees or forests that over hundreds of millions of years was made into either oil, uh, gas or coal that we're consuming very fast. The planetary conditions that were needed to create this incredible resource we're consuming now, we must be recreating on our planet because that's what we're doing. We're basically turning that sunlight that was captured by these animals and plants, uh, we're putting it back into the atmosphere as you know, carbon dioxide, essentially. And it was like, for me, that was just like a profound, like, oh, my God, yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah. it was pretty hot back then, I imagine, and there was pretty, uh, you know, like, must have not a lot of um, pleasant conditions to live in, like, good for dinosaurs, maybe, not good for humans, <laughs> where we have to be, you know, like, the, we have to be going back to that space. And, and so I guess those three books combined – you know, I guess I've been a, a frame of how I, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing and how, why I see energy as a proxy for environmental destruction is because if we're efficient with energy, then we will automatically be efficient with water. If we're efficient with energy, we'll automatically reduce our greenhouse emissions. It just goes without saying. So my view about the planetary condition is, in terms of the human condition, is that essentially... Climate change is really feedback for humans to become more conscious of the energy we're consuming to maintain our lifestyles and to make better choices about the efficiency of what we consume it, how we make it. So, you know, the choice to put on that light switch actually has a consequence, you know, right down to a power station, to a coal mine or, you know, to wherever it's coming from. But it's like that actually has a consequence where we've got no connection with that now. Like we're totally disconnected from what we do to its impact. And and also, you know, I guess one of like Craig Emerson, who's a bit of a hero of mine, you know, one of the things he said was um, to me, it was we were talking about when we were promoting the use of natural gas for power stations back in 1990, the Department of Treasury uh, came with an argument that's in, uh, I think it was Treasury and uh, Industry, it came with an argument that, oh, that natural gas is too precious to burn for power stations, it should be kept for industry. And Craig's response was, well, the best way to allocate resources is price. So if the price is set at a price, if the price allows me to run that for power generation, that's what I'm going to do with it. And I don't, you know, don't let some bureaucrat in some office decide whether or how I should be using that power. So what I really believe in market forces and I believe in, you know, price being reflective of, cost and impact. So, you know, I believe in carbon tax is a good idea. Is it going to save the day? No, but it's a great idea because like, at least it makes more consciousness about my choice. So my view about us getting through this challenge we've got around climate change to me is around 
raising consciousness. And so Inspira as a software, and again, a brilliant brand name, well done on that, Dan. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Is um, essentially around giving tools to management and decision makers, giving people the tools to be more conscious of their decisions. And once opportunities raise their head, once they're exposed, like opportunities are shown in Inspira of where the waste is and the financial benefits, um, the, the you know, typically actors will want to act. Like the decision makers will want to do something because it's now they're now conscious of their choices until they are showing it yeah um, until they're showing you know right now if you're if you're ignorant to the opportunity it's easy to be ignorant but once you're now educated and showing the opportunity that Inspire reveals then you'll you know consciously want to act if you're a rational human being which most people are <laughs> yeah you'd hope so who's someone remarkable that you know that we should speak to yeah I think uh, well you know, Craig Emerson and Isla from, you know, being human beings of amazing calibre are definitely worth a chat to And, um, you know, in business sense, if you could, uh, you know, get Jigga Shaw engaged, um, I think he's, you know, he's, he would, he's got a remarkable story to tell and a, and a remarkable vision about what he's wanting to achieve. Um, he's basically, his goal is to uh, free up the capital markets to fund, you know, the transition to a you know, carbon neutral planet and um and you know he's doing a pretty good job at the moment yeah okay small billion dollars but you know it's like it's, it's they've done all that from 2013 to now francis what's your favorite quote or the best piece of advice that you've ever been given i went to a conference by a guy called dr wayne dyer who's since died and he put together a series of quotes famous quotes into a book which i bought and the book was called Beginner Now, and I think at the very last page it had this quote from Goethe, and it was like after I read it, it was like you know it had an impact on me, and it has an impact on me now. And I, I really see the the power of the understanding that it's trying to convey, and it goes something like: until one is committed, there is hesitancy and the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation. There is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. At the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues, a whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favour all manner of unforeseen incidences, meetings, material of assistance that no man could have dreamed would have come his way whatever you can do or dream you can begin it boldness has genius power and magic in it begin it now wow that's a really good quote yeah and uh, i mean it just it's my truth yeah thank you for yeah thank you for reading it or sharing it yeah sorry about the tears there that's okay it's a yeah i mean it's it's something that resonates a lot i think until you really commit like are you willing to do it or not Mm. i think that's really true and it's something that we've you know we've seen working with you and your team is that there's that 100 percent commitment to the cause the vision and all of the different business units and businesses and projects they all point to that one core vision of um you know how do we leave the world in a better place 
And it's like you don't need to know the path. It's like the path will reveal itself once you commit. Yes. Versus thinking that there needs to be a clear path. So, yeah, the commitment to the one gigaton, it's like created the path. And then and we're just, you know, so like it's a like just how, you know, it's weird. <clears throat> we appointed a guy in South Africa in February to be, you know, Rex. He's our first employee in Barron Energy. And uh, he's an older guy, got a lot of experience in the oil sector. Anyway, he does a drive to look at some cactus farms and then uh, he just, he wants to drive to Port Elizabeth, which is nowhere near the cactus farms, because he wants to, he's heard of his opportunity at VW. And uh, driving to VW, he drives past uh, a farm, which he actually, he rang me from the farm. He said, oh, hey, I'm, wrong. I'm near, near Port Elizabeth, about 10 k's out, and there's a land for sale here. It probably looks good for cactus. <laughs> and that's the Manzi farm we're about to buy. And he never had been there before in his life. Only went to BW, only went to Port Elizabeth to visit BW, and it's created the first, you know, deal for the first block of land. It's just like insane. Like the something about initiative, taking action, creates the future that is the what's gonna lead us to our destination. Yeah. Yeah. Not not couldn't plan it. So yeah. Well, Francis, thank you so much for being so generous with your time, but also being just such a great guest. And, you know, there's so much in this episode. I'm really excited to share it. To leave off, where can people learn more about you? Yeah, um, well, I got the, a LinkedIn account and published a number of papers on that and uh, white papers on, you know, different aspects of energy management and what have you. And uh, But I, I've actually also written a book on how to profit from climate change. So, if anyone's listening and wanting a copy of the book, I could, you know, drop, give them a PDF copy. And my email is uh, francis.barrenbadinsight.co. So um, any one of those ways, uh, you know, through LinkedIn or an email, I'm happy to respond and share. And we'll, include, we'll include links in the show notes. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you, Dan, for the invitation and for the awesome work you've done on uh, the branding of... Um, Inside and Spire and Barren Energy and et cetera. It's just really, it actually, that branding has really coalesced in, you know, a unifying force in the business. That, that identity that people, you know, within the business now see has actually created serious momentum. So the power of brand, you know, is, you know, definitely have underestimated it, seeing the power it has now. Thank, so thank you. you. I, appreci- I appreciate that feedback. Yeah. I mean, for us, it's an incredibly uh, rewarding project to work on. Not only are we lucky to work on something that is actually going to change the world for good, but it also to be able to do it with a bunch of people that you just genuinely enjoy their company and, and to actually work with. It's been incredibly rewarding and inspiring. So I appreciate your time. Yeah. And, and yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it, man. Cheers, Francis. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Discover Someone Remarkable. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your network. To support us, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. To learn more about us or the guests on this show, visit dsrb.com.au slash podcast. DSR Branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents. We hope that this episode has inspired you to think differently.